0: Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout.
1: In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City.
0: Welcome to the Long Forum Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Hello. Hello, Aaron. What have you got for us this week on the show? Very excited about our guest this week. When I told Max I was doing it, Max claimed that we had already had this guest on, but we have not. And that is always a good description of an ideal guest, someone we can't believe that we have not had on before. Uh, my guest is Max Chafkin who I guess when I first became aware of his writing, he was writing for Fast Company. Um, He's now at Bloomberg, and uh, he has a new book out called The Contrarian about Peter Thiel, and it is juicy. And I wanted to talk to him about it, so I did. I know you like to talk about Peter Thiel. I've talked to you about Peter Thiel. I can't imagine what it was like for you to talk to someone who actually knows anything about Peter Thiel. This, uh, This book's got some pretty great anecdotes in it. Literally before uh, this, I was looking at the title and I landed on a annotation and the annotation was just an attribution for a quote, assless chaps. So there's at least one reference to assless chaps in this book about Peter Thiel. That's all you need to know to listen to this interview. feels like a perfect segue to just mention our new partnership with Vox. That's who we're making the podcast with these days. They've been great
2: and uh, it's a delight.
0: Thanks, Vox. And now here's Aaron with Max Chafkin. Welcome, Max Chafkin.
2: Hey, Aaron. How you doing?
0: I'm good. I wanted to talk to you because you have a new book about Peter Thiel. But uh, in prepping for this interview, I dug into your long form uh, archive and noted that you have a piece about Twitter Published in two thousand and eight, while Twitter was still, I think, subletting desks in their office space. Were they the the buyer, or were they the subletters, or were they being subletted from in that story?
2: Oh my god! Uh, I'm trying to remember. I think they were subletting it from another company that was owned by Ev Williams. Maybe, Um, like, like I could recreate the layout of the office. I think I could draw it, <laughs> but I can't remember the specifics of the uh, the arrangement. I mean, it's really weird because, like, um, you know, I haven't read that, gone back to that story in a while, but, you know, everything, Twitter, even Twitter had been around for a couple years, I think, at that point, so, like, on some level, I, I felt like I was late to the story or something, um, which I guess ha- is how it always is, But uh, but, like, the grammar and the vocabulary in that story is all wrong in retrospect. Like, I think I called them Twitters instead of Tweets because like there was not a settled rule of whether like the output on Twitter should be called a tweet or a Twitter. And I got in a huge argument with copy desk at the time, like in defense of my choice, which obviously like was, was the wrong choice. It's their tweets, not Twitter's as it turns out.
0: When you're stepping into a situation like that, where you may have the perception that you're late, but history will show that you're extremely early and you don't really know sort of where you are on on the swing of a company's trajectory. What do you do with that? Like as a writer and how do you think about gauging where you are on the curve and, and sort of trying to communicate that to a
2: reader? This is probably like a self-serving assumption, but like I sort of always assume it's like never too late. I mean, especially if something is still growing. And so that's sort of what I told myself, like going into the into the Twitter piece, like, oh yeah, this is like big with, with like tech people, but it hasn't gotten big in the in the larger world yet and that you know usually works although of course it doesn't always work you could you get it wrong and then you end up writing like you know there are a lot of embarrassing or in retrospect embarrassing magazine stories that have been written that are just like talking about something as if you know it's the next big thing and of course it's you know it's actually you've caught it on the wrong on the wrong end of that but i don't know i mean i always think like journalists too often think the story has already passed them by and and usually it hasn't like actually You know, the news moves quick, but I think like, I don't know, like there's always more to say. And, you know, I mean, there's always like a history. There's always there's always more that hasn't been written, I think.
0: So you wrote that story for Inc. Magazine. Tell me about how you managed to get into writing about startups uh, in the first place. That's kind of like the beginning of the startup journalism industrial complex.
2: yeah. That story came out in two thousand and eight. So I started my career in like two thousand and five. so three years before um that that story came out. And you know, I was like a fact checker at Inc. And I think probably just because like I was the young person or something, I was like allowed to <laughs> to cover uh tech because like uh, nobody was interested in it. Um, and I just had been into that. Interested in that world, like as a reader, like you know, reading Wired in high school, and um, just sort of being interested in like programming and and hacking. I mean, I'm not a hacker, but kind of but interested in reading about that stuff. And so I just sort of fell into it, and uh, it was like a a process of elimination or default or something. There was just nobody else who who wanted to do it.
0: So I would describe it as a a magazine sort of aimed at entrepreneurs. So it, in some ways, stands outside of a lot of the coverage of the tech industry that's been heavily critical. This is more a magazine for people who might be aspiring to enter that industry. How did that affect your sort of development as a writer? And and how did you think about that perspective going into those stories?
2: So I was just to think about it in my head, like it's like runner's world, but for entrepreneurs. You know, like I'm a runner, and and uh, you know, it's like you get the like, here are the best shoes, and you know, here are some new training tactics, and and yeah, you know, obviously that's like a really w- different place that a lot of people like approach journalism. You know, I I didn't didn't approach it, especially not initially, as like oh I'm I'm here to, you know, hold people in. Power to account. Um, I mean, you know, there there are there are ways, right? That when you work at a service magazine, you can tell yourself you're not just like, you know, you're you're doing good for the world. Like most of these small business owners, they're they're not people in power. They're they're people who need lifting up. So I, I told myself that, but no, I mean, yeah, initially it's it's just uh, trying to sort of empathize with what business people are going through. And I liked that at the time, um, just because empathy is a good way to like, you know, relate to another human. And I also just think small business and and writing about like that part of the economy is something that's just, you know, hugely important. And there are lots of, you know, really uh, cool stories in there that speak to the real life that most people live, as opposed to, you know, whatever. Like a lot of business coverage is is focused from an investing perspective, which you know I work at Bloomberg now, and Bloomberg is very much committed to catering to investors and also to, to you know to writing about people in power and 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 publishing you know important investigations and stuff. So it's I I definitely think both are important, but I don't know it, whatever. It gave me a different perspective, and I I certainly you know drifted away from that. Like I don't really you know I'm not doing service journalism anymore, at least not in the in the kind of strict sense. Although I think a lot of really great journalism could be described as service journalism. It's just it's just not it's a little bit removed from the runner's world thing, but um where it's where you're explaining some piece of the world to people and and helping them, you know, make sense of their lives. And and I think that people tend to kind of look down on that kind of work, but I, I think it can be really powerful and moving and et cetera.
0: I think the most memorable piece that I read from you during that run I think this was for Inc. I hope I uh, am not wrong about this, was you wrote about this Israeli electric car startup called Better Place. Am I getting that right?
2: Yeah, Better Place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, it was actually for Fast Company, but but it was kind of in the sa- that same period.
0: Same parent company. I'll, I'll, I'll allow it.
2: Exactly, yeah.
0: Yeah, so I, I guess I wonder if you could talk about that, that like, the default experience for a tech business is most things just fail. W- what did you find in writing about a big failure?
2: Yeah, yeah. So it was an Israeli uh, company that was, an, you know, competitor to Tesla. It's, uh, you know, been forgotten now with Tesla's success. But but their idea was they were going to have these like cheap electric cars. And the batteries were going to be swappable. Instead of having a, a car that you charge, you would bring it to a basically like a gas station and they would take the battery out of the bottom of the car and put a new battery in, you know, in like five minutes. And um, which is, you know, that's a clever idea and and uh, whatever, it's kind of interesting on its own. Part of the reason Better Place became this, you know, failure that, that, that burned through like a billion dollars is because the founder of the company was kind of on the davos you know circuit um and he told a story that wasn't just about like technology, it was about bringing peace to the Middle East. So the fact that the company was Israeli, the fact that they were coming up with an, an alternative to oil was like a big part of the the pitch and a big part of the reason that like, you know, the Times' is Thomas Friedman wrote a column in praise of them, you know, Shia this guy, you know, showed up at at TED, I believe, you know, a bunch of these kind of, you know, Davos era, uh, you know, where you're breathing the uh, the rarefied air, and um, you know, I I like that story. I think was kind of cool because there's like an investigative element of it. You're trying to understand how this company blew through all this money and how people were able to get you know so diluted or whatever. But of course, like a story like that can have value to people who are in that world. You know, I, I for years I was getting like messages from people at other companies who were who were talking about how like, you know, it really rang true because because when companies are being wasteful and, and doing dumb things, they I think they kind of tend to look similar. Right. They're sort of believing their own bullshit. And as a result, like hiring all sorts of, you know, people they probably shouldn't hire, a, like a chief philosophers and, you know, or whatever. And and so the other thing, I mean, that story just personally for me was a cool experience because. Like I. I think there's like a really good way to come up with story ideas where you basically just look for people who've given TED talks and figure out like what what they're lying about. And there's also a, a tendency, I think, in the press or whatever, to kind of to pump up these startups based on those stories. So I just think it's like a it's a it's it's a worthwhile thing to examine. It's like worth taking a critical look at these, you know, stars of the moment, because often there's not not as much there as, as we think. And, you know, if you're talking about Theranos or something, there's like, you know, there's some potential to do harm. But also it means that, you know, maybe more worthwhile efforts are, are not getting, um, you know, are not getting the attention they deserve because they're not pretending that they're going to, like, bring peace to the Middle East. They're just trying to like you know make a nice electric car, and you know probably the guy who's just trying to make a nice electric car or the woman who's trying to make a nice electric car is going to be is gonna win rather than the one who's gonna try to make a nice electric car and have an amazing TED talk about you know bring peace to the Middle East.
0: How do you start doing that research? like how do you corroborate the claims being made by a company yourself
2: right? Well, a lot of times. I mean, two big things. Like one is, you know, talk to employees, former employees. I think employees are often probably more sensitive to bullshit than anybody else, right? Like they can, their bullshit meter is probably like a little, set like almost even a little bit too high. I think we're all, we all tend to, um, you know, whatever, look, look out for hypocrisy. But often like they're just like huge internal consistencies. It's not like to start digging or to start wanting to, to look into something like this, you don't even necessarily have to like look beyond the thing itself. Like, I mean, there were with that Better Place story, there, you know, there were just like huge red flags. I mean, they weren't selling any cars. Um, uh, it wasn't clear where the money was. Go- you know, there's like uh, so. So I think like the the first step is just to look for you know internal consistency. It does does the actual thing they're saying like make any sense? And and often it, it doesn't. And and of course. You can go deeper than that, and that doesn't necessarily apply to every story. But I think that's, like, the most important thing, just, like, being a critical reader.
0: Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening.
1: Because, like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course.
0: Well, this comes into play uh, multiple times in Peter Thiel's story where the press did quite a bit to make it seem like they had this evil genius technology when, at least according to, to your reporting in the book, it seems like early on the Palantir software barely did anything. It was mostly marketing hype.
2: Yeah, and that, that's my assessment. And I mean, let me give you a quick kind of synopsis of the Palantir story, and then I'll, I'll kind of explain how I came to that conclusion. So Palantir was... Teal's idea it grew out of some technology that PayPal had developed, or it's it's not really technology, more like an, an approach to dealing with fraud. Um, PayPal, of course, it's a payments company. You got to deal with you know money launderers, uh, credit card thieves, etc. They came up with this sort of network system for um, figuring out who was a bad guy and and who was you know legitimate eBay seller or whatever. And Teal's idea, which was really, you know, smart, was, you know, wake a 9-11. Suddenly there is a lot of enthusiasm about data mining, a, a feeling that our, our failure to do, you know, adequate network analysis is part of what led to, you know, us failing to stop 9-11. And hey, here's here's this technology, or or like I said, not quite a technology, more like an approach to finding bad guys. And let me sell it to the military, and one of my big kind of like theories about this about Silicon Valley and a lot of the important figures in Silicon Valley, and this impl- this applies to teal, but it doesn't just apply to teal, is that you know people tend to assume that these tech companies are run by like great technologists, and and sometimes they are, but a lot of tech people who are seen as you know brilliant or whatever are are also great marketers. I mean, I think like Elon Musk, right is is like I, I'm not I'm not an expert right in in rocket science. But I can tell you, like he's an amazing marketer and and his ability to sell stuff is is really incredible. And um, same thing with Peter Thiel. I mean, it's kind of a weird thing to say about a guy who's Affect is so introverted or whatever but like I think he's 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 told this incredible story about himself and and that has included this this Palantir thing that you're bringing up. You know when you take an
0: idea like that that the Palantir software was kind of smoke and mirrors
2: early on. Tell me how you found that out. The way this was covered was that Palantir was You know, Big Brother. I mean, I literally think Forbes did a story that was like meet Big Brother, and you know that was of course the aspiration, but it wasn't necessarily um, (laughs) what they were at the time. And the thing that really unlocked this for me, I mean, there's there was some really good reporting. So the thing I'm doing. First and foremost is just trying to read everything that's out there and try to read it critically. And if and we looked at the reporting, there were sort of two threads. There was the the big brother thread, and then there was this kind of trade magaziney type thread that nobody was really paying attention to. How Palantir was having trouble selling their software and how they had all these contracts. They kept announcing contracts with like Coca Cola and you know Pepsi. I, I can't remember the the specific uh, companies, but you know they were, they were they had these big contracts and then they were. Um, quietly being canceled and so there's like an inconsistency there right like it's it's big brother but no one wants to buy it and and that's what kind of got me interested in it and i and i think like i think both of those threads are are worth pulling because palantir definitely has you know important implications for privacy like i i think that it, you know if you're concerned about privacy it is worth being concerned about palantir and 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 the impact it's had but i think Especially in the early years, they were sort of making it seem like their capabilities were maybe a little scarier than they actually were. The thing that really first unlocked it for me was, was, you know, talking to a customer who gave me kind of a frank assessment of the capabilities of the software. And it was like, you know, it was like kind of night and day from from what I had read. And from there, you know, started talking, uh, you know, to former employees, current employees, and, you know... The story that I heard was was this kind of consistent um, thing, which is that you know for years and years and years, the company was really having trouble making the software work.
0: I think that there's a urge generally to use the cult of personality around the founders as a way to understand the essential nature of the companies. I wonder if you could sort of talk about your experiences around that, and is that an effective way to talk about companies, and how did it play out in talking about... I mean, uh, Teal is interesting, because in the book, you get to see his cult of personality uh, applied to several companies in distinct spheres.
2: Oh, man, so many thoughts on this. So I think when you're writing about you know, small, privately held companies, especially understanding the founder's personality is is like really important. It's it's like really hard. Um and companies where where like a single person still kind of controls the company. I mean, I think it's really hard to talk about Facebook in any kind of intelligent way without like understanding Mark Zuckerberg. If you're a nonfiction writer, that's like a, a gift from God. I mean, you know, that's a, a, a character who's who's in every room. You know, Teal isn't in every room. You know, having a character whose influence works differently was was kind of uh, I guess like in some ways, a limitation, but also like an interesting challenge. and because, of course, influence can work in all different ways. and and like sometimes people are influential because, you know they're in the room, but like a lot of really powerful people aren't in the room. In fact, they try not to be in the room because there are advantages to working through, you know intermediaries and through loyalists and and that's that's teal's approach. And the other thing, the other, part of, of Teal that I think is is really interesting and um, is that he's sort of leveraged this kind of cult of personality thing that you're talking about. I mean, he's, he's created sort of an intellectual movement around himself. And so he doesn't even necessarily have to like be in the room because he's got this kind of large army of followers who are intellectually allied, who are... Um, for reasons that are are sometimes, Sort of authentic to their beliefs, or sometimes kind of self-interested, have you know strong incentives to kind of ape his ideas to push things in the direction that that he wants. I mean, you know, the PayPal mafia thing. It, it, I, you know, in some ways, I think it's cheeky, but I, I think they're serious. Like, it is kind of like a mafia in the sense that it's somewhat decentralized. It's based on loyalty. It's a network. Like, it is. It is like a, a mafia, and it's just kind of like a mafia of money and, and influence rather than, you know, protection racket or something. And I think that's been a really kind of like smart thing that that Teal's done and it makes it hard to write about him, but also kind of interesting.
0: For a story that's in some ways been heavily reported already, what were the mysteries for you? Like what were the things that you didn't know going into this book that you felt like you needed to figure out?
2: So there are a few uh, a few things. and often there w- there were cases where there had been like kind of a lot of a lot of reporting around it, but I wasn't really sure how much to trust it. So, for instance, you know, the gawker case and and teal's kind of effort to um to to destroy Gawker media, um there had been a lot of production. You know, around that story, but a lot of it was basically one source, and it was Peter Thiel because he had uh, he basically found this uh, writer, Ryan Holiday, who wrote a book about the case with access to Thiel, and it's very much you know it's it's like Peter Thiel's version of events, and you know when Forbes reported that that Thiel. Uh, had been the secret funder of this this litigation. Teal went to Andrew Ross Sorkin at the Times and and gave an interview. And so like the actual like account of his motivations of what exactly happened, it was all uh, largely you know based on you know a handful of stories where he had a he had a big hand. Like some of the the big ones were like trying to figure out okay like what what really happened like what was like the real. Um, you know, motivation for, for, for destroying Gawker? What, what did he really do it in exactly the way that the Ryan Holiday book suggests? So, so that was like one big category of things. Another category of things was like intellectual consistency. Like, uh, one of the things that like attracted me to, to Teal as a subject is like, he's so everything is like, there's so many weird mysteries about his beliefs. Like how does, a Gay immigrant technologist come to to support Donald Trump. I mean, you know specifically who did he meet with that that sort of thing. You know what what happened and like you know what is Peter Thiel and Donald Trump. You know what what are these two people? What are these two men who couldn't see more different? You know what do they say when they meet each other? And then you know there were some other. You know, weird little fun rabbit holes. I mean, Teal weirdly was a uh, had this like career as a hedge fund manager that people sort of forgotten about because it ended in failure. But there was a time when he was like the hot Wall Street guy, um, and it and and he was getting you know written up in Barrons and the Wall Street Journal, and and then he basically lost all his investors' money. And I was you know trying to figure out how that happened. Um, uh, so yeah, it was a, a a combination of kind of like meta questions and then sort of more like kind of traditional reporting questions. How did you
0: deal with those contradictions in sort of framing Teal as a character? Uh, You know, the simplest one in the book being, this is a person who's dedicated a huge amount of their life to pushing libertarian causes, but is in some ways building businesses like Palantir that require a very large government in order for themselves to make money.
2: Well, I think um, a couple of things. I mean, just from like a philosophical standpoint, like I think the things people say, like we should pay more attention to the things they actually say rather than like attempting to, you know, find a hidden meaning. I, I think mostly most people say what they mean most of the time. And if you have to, if you there's any question, you should generally assume the thing they say is a the thing they mean. And uh, that matters to me because you know when teal supported trump right there were all these people who created all these insane you know kind of like um uh, you know sort of literary explanations almost to figure out like why would he support trump like maybe he cuz cuz of course he couldn't actually just like trump but but like that's the most like likely explanation is he supported trump because he likes trump and likes trumpism and you know that's that's what you know, my reporting bears out. It's also there in things he said. I mean, it's not like he's, it's not like he's lied about it. I mean, he, he wrote this essay, you know, in 2009, that was, you know, incredibly controversial for lots of reasons, but it was all about how he no longer believed in democracy. Um, in that essay, he also, you know, sort of somewhat famously said that, you know, it's too bad that women uh, got the right to vote because, you know, that's that's uh, push things in a bad direction from a policy perspective. You know, it's like <laughs> um, uh, it's uh, favor the welfare state or whatever. So I think I think he's got a belief system that is not all that different from the kind of like nationalist populist thing that we see coming out of um, a big sector of uh, you know American politics, and I don't think that's a t- total accident. Like I mean, I think Teal has helped push things in that direction, um, both um, through his you know kind of force of intellect and also by spending money in clever and creative ways. I mean, the other the other thing is, and and this is maybe in, in contradiction to everything I just said, um, <laughs> but you know, Teal is at his core like a hedge fund guy. That's kind of like where he, that's how he got into tech investing. As I said, he had this long career as a tech investor. He is not a, he doesn't fit the kind of like Silicon Valley model of either entrepreneurship or investing. And as a result, I don't know, I think he's been ideologically somewhat flexible because- he's been really effective at using his ideology and his his platform and his following to kind of push things in a way that that will like make him money
1: this episode is brought to you by shopify
0: Well, this dovetails with something you said earlier, which is that, you know, if you have a, a press that writes about founders as these cults of personality, eventually that gets read by the people who actually work at the company and it becomes part of the company's DNA itself. I wonder how you think about that, how much you think that your own coverage has influenced people, and that's something you have to think about as you write the follow-up stories about the Twitters and these companies that you've been following for a long time.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the honest truth is we try not to think of it because it's pretty uncomfortable to acknowledge, right, that that we're driving – you know, whatever. Like, it's it. Uh, this shows up a lot in political coverage, right? Like, when you cover the poll, does the does the coverage of the poll move the poll? Does it? Any? Um, and I think you know that that certainly comes into play here, and and um and it's uncomfortable, and it means that you know it just means that everybody who participates in journalism or whatever like has a pretty profound responsibility because the things that we write, you know, uh, matter. And um and I, I think you know to the extent that there's kind of like tech pushback on on press coverage. I, I think part of what happened and may, maybe this is just something I tell myself to feel better about myself, but like tech companies were insurgents for a while. And over the last, you know, 15 years they've definitely stopped being insurgents. They've gone from being on the outside looking in to being, you know, the actual power brokers. I mean, you know, Facebook is by far the most powerful media company like in human history. It's like not even close. And not to like psychologize Silicon Valley too much, but I do think part of this kind of like the tech guys getting mad at at the press, which that's a you know, that's part of the Teal story. That's like Teal's going after Gawker, you know, it has to do with the fact that the self-perception, even now, has really caught up with with the amount of power that these companies have. And, and of course it is starting to catch up. Cause as you say, you know, these employees, employees of Facebook and Google and Microsoft and Amazon, they're all raising these issues now. And they're generating advocacy, you know, from within. They've they've sort of figured out that their employers are, you know, some of the most powerful people in the world and, and need to be scrutinized. So to me, that's like an encouraging development and and probably like a natural development. But it definitely, if you've been covering this world for a long time, there's a shift that, that has happened.
0: This book's really exciting, you know, for a book that just takes place in a bunch of like um, you know, Silicon Valley boardrooms, it's got a lot of operatic power because you can start to see how these niche ideas start playing out as the power base grows. So, it almost feels like we're building these nation-states and experimenting with different forms of the distribution of power uh, no longer as a country but even within these companies.
2: Yeah. I mean, that was kind of like why, you know, uh, in the end, like, I think it's important to write about somebody like Teal is just, it, it speaks to the the power that these companies have. And, and like, because, you know, this stuff has kind of been happening off to the side, this world of, you know, basically like trade reporters and things like that. I mean, you know, this world that I inhabited um, and in some ways continue to inhabit, like, you know, we didn't, we didn't bother scrutinizing because like, who cares what, you know, Mark Zuckerberg actually believes when, you know, Facebook is this like tiny dipshit social media company. But like now, like I really care. And same thing with, um, with somebody like Teal. And so I I, I definitely think like, you know, kind of like trying to understand the, the ideas that have cr- kind of created these companies and like what, what these guys actually believe has like you know, real importance and explanatory power and probably help us figure out how to navigate the next, you know, whatever, 10, 20 years.
0: Did you have any concerns in tackling this story that Peter Thiel is someone who has put an entire publication out of business? Did it give you any pause about writing a book about him?
2: Yeah, it did. I think it was designed to scare people and to make other people who might Write critical things, you know, about him. Think twice about that, and I think Teal talked about, you know, deterrence, right? Like that's the subtext. As somebody who cares about, you know, free expression and and scrutiny of 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 people in power and the importance of journalism as a as a thing, like that is that is that's that's some heavy stuff. I like personally, I I. I Tried to not let that affect me because number one, you know, I'm I'm doing my job. I'm I'm you know following the basic rules of fairness and transparency. And you know, I was not I'm you know didn't didn't set out to 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 write a negative book or something. I, I set out to 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 talk about the truth, and and so that is something that that I feel like I can take comfort in. And also, I just think we as journalists like have a duty to ourselves and. And to the world to, you know, to try as much as we can to to not be afraid.
0: Is there any advice you could give someone who wants to take on a litigious or combative subject? Did you go about this in any way differently, knowing that this is someone who, who sues, this is someone who will take this matter to a legal level uh, if threatened?
2: No, because I think you have to assume that anybody you write about, I mean, I I think it's probably good practice to be always thinking about um, the potential for for legal threats and things like that. I mean, that's something that, you know, it's just a part of kind of um, whatever the news gathering process and things like that. So like, I, you know, whatever at Bloomberg, you know, our stories go through a, a legal vetting. I mean, every book by a major publisher, you know, is, is legally vetted just because like, unfortunately, you know, there are a lot of aspiring Peter Teals out there, right? Like there's, you know, there are people who have, uh, who have, who have picked up on the tactics and, um, and, uh, and are employing it for themselves. So I don't think there's like some, there's, I don't think there's any big secret. I mean, I, I, I think with this project, like I, I really just self-consciously try to approach it. Like, you know, there's been a lot written about this guy, and I, I don't necessarily want to buy into any any particular narrative going in. I, w- I want to approach this fresh and and like with empathy, and and with a sense of truth. And I think that that is, you know, I mean, it's such a boring piece of whatever. That's the most boring thing to say. But but I think that's basically just what everybody should always do. I, I don't know. Um, I think just like following the basic rule book that we've all kind of figured out is the way forward.
0: What excites you going forward? Um, now that you've been doing this for, uh, you know, almost 15 years now, what, what is there still left to be, uh, excited about? And, and where do you see getting stories going forward?
2: Uh, dude, I don't know. I mean, it's weird. I never knew how, um, you know whatever writing a book everyone tells you it's going to take a long time but it, you never really appreciate it until um <laughs> you know until <laughs> till you're there um i continue to be really interested in um in this world and in kind of the in kind of the confluence of power um and tech um i think you know i, I i'm not just saying this because i'm talking to you but you know i i do think like crypto and, and the world of crypto is something that is worth like paying attention to in that way because like because there's so much money um, and because it's so new and so interesting and and I mean you know teal obviously is has played a role there um and so so I think like that that stuff, I think is exciting um, just from like a a journalistic perspective.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you bring it out. I'll I'll just take, I'll just, I'll just take any opportunity. um, Someone gives me to um, talk about crypto for several minutes because uh, it's the thing that's just running (laughs) through my brain at all times, but I do see certain similarities in the way that the most sort of superficial coverage of the cryptocurrency industry reminds me a little bit of the superficial coverage of consumer tech startup products where yeah like if you you would think that the failure of the Juicero product was one of the biggest stories in technology history just because people loved it so much and i see certain <laughs> similarities in the way that you know people cover nft trading and some of the yeah. more pop cultural elements of cryptocurrency and in some ways it's a great dodge around the um, smoldering ball of power and money that's being built um, to talk about the uh, the lighter side of and I wonder like how you think about that in in choosing your own stories like h- how do you balance that sort of uh destructive uh, power capability to destroy everything versus this one's gonna make them laugh kind of coverage <laughs>
2: Oh, man. Uh, So, like, the Juicero thing, I kind of feel like, uh, not to defend the media here, but, you know, like, I kind of think that was, like, uh, I I think the media, you know, treated that kind of appropriately, and it just, it was just so funny that, you know, it sort of took off and became a meme or something. I don't know. Um, I I sort of feel like if you look back at at the original coverage of that, it's, Proportional, it's not treating it as if it was like this gigantic thing. Um, But I don't know, I I take your point. And I I do think like, I mean, to me, what's really interesting, and I've been thinking about this more since I've been at Bloomberg and and been more exposed to like um, the world of finance. Um, It's this like really like arcane uh, world where there's like, it's got its own language, it's got these like kind of mysterious practitioners uh, it's like pretty intimidating if you're on the outside and like most tech people like don't really like understand it super well. And I think that's like a really big opportunity. Like, I think that's part of what is appealing in crypto to a lot of the people who are, who are getting into it. And it also means it's like really hard to cover. Cause like, do you treat it as a, you know, finance phenomenon? Do you treat it as a, a like an investing phenomenon? Um, do you treat it as a technology? It's phenomena. It's kind of all three. Um, uh, and and as you say uh, especially now with the like you know there is this like big interest group of 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 crypto heads who will basically read you know who 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 are in some ways directing the coverage now at this point like there's certain crypto stories right that are guaranteed to get a lot of clicks because there's this kind of like built-in audience like it's 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 um it's big they're engaged and and like if you cater to them you can you can um you do pretty well and so like that, that creates challenges like when you're trying to reach people who are outside that audience and also trying to just like cut through the bs and and like really understand it it's 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 not easy and i like i haven't figured it out and that's kind of what i think that's sort of what's exciting and i i totally agree like the the power aspect of crypto has been given the short shrift because it's so goofy and, you know, it's like, it's fun. I mean, the, 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 goofy stuff is also like really fun, but you know, I think I agree, like there's, there's a whole other side that we're, I, you know, I think people are only now starting to explore and that has, you know, they're just like real challenges in terms of how do you write about it and that, that I haven't totally figured out yet.
0: Yeah. I feel like as a general rule, I, I assume that when, The next thing of the scale of the internet in terms of change, and I'm not saying that cryptocurrency is that, but let's just say when the next the internet comes along, um, it will be impossible to describe to an outsider who hasn't experienced it. The terminology, the metaphors will be so nascent that the early coverage of it will look like the early coverage of the internet. And, and we can see like little versions, of this all over the place. Like it's so hard to describe Gamergate to someone who is not extremely online. Like these things that are, are really big events in terms of where the world is going. Um, If you don't have the, the sort of proper grounding in them, it's almost like you'd need a, uh, you know, 500 pages of backstory to even get to the start of the story.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and like when you go back and read, you know, I spent a lot of time, whatever, reading old coverage of, um, you know from the 90s right of the of the original dot-com boom and and as you say like a lot of it's wrong and like even the stuff that's right it it doesn't seem right at the time right like it it's it's like you could you could just like knock it out of the park um but you know there's like a pretty good chance that no one will even notice or if they know you know or or (laughs) or if they notice they'll think you're totally wrong um you know there were some like great there's like a there was like a Uh, a story written in like 1996 in fast company that like really described the kind of like teal ideology and this whole like ideological thing that was happening that is happening that had happened that then happened for like 30 years like it really got it like you know pretty pretty you know on point and um and like you know i had never heard of it you know (laughs) like like I, i don't think it I, 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 you know sometimes like even even being right doesn't doesn't matter if if like the rest of the world like you know whatever hasn't hasn't caught up um i don't know i mean it's it's it, uh, it's hard to know what to you know what the next like i don't know like as journalists like it's, it's hard to know like where to like to direct your energies because uh, i don't know there's there is like there's a tension between you know what audiences want and like i don't know what like what is ultimately going to be the most interesting and fulfilling and all that Um, but i am really excited to like actually get in and like you know start writing some stories again i miss magazine writing is um is so much so much fun and uh, i don't know in some ways whatever book writing is fun but but there is something kind of special about about the kind of like quicker um pace of, of like a magazine story
0: well, um, thank you so much for this interview.
2: Yeah, my pleasure. It was really fun. I'm glad we got to I'm glad we got to hit the crypto thing. I was getting worried when you hadn't, you know, <laughs> <laughs> nasty.
0: I want to let people bring it to me. If I start bringing it to the world, um, I'm worried that the world will not be receptive, but uh, I'm also glad <laughs> we
2: got to talk about it.
0: And thanks for all the uh, all the insights.
2: Thanks, Aaron. Really, it was really fun.
0: And with that comes to the close, another episode of the long Form podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. This episode was edited by Jackie Sojiko. Our intern is Susan Peterson. I want to send a huge thank you and congratulations to our friends over at MailChimp. And of course, uh, our friends at Fox who produced this show. We'll be back next week.